Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have Steve Byrne, Executive Vice President of FSG. Well, he's got a short bio like mine. I love it. He's uh, After serving in the Air Force and attending the University of Texas in Austin, Steve helped start the company in 1982 in San Antonio, Texas. Today, he leads the lighting and distribution business. He's done a lot of work, different places, Starbucks, renovations, Bloomin's Brands, new store construction, retrofits, city, state, school, lighting projects, all sorts of stuff. It's going to be fun to talk to him. It's the second time he's a guest on the show, so look forward to this one. It's always better the second time, right? Before we go there, Greggy, before we go there, we got to get crazy here on the Get a Good Run Lighting Podcast. we got to go to tcpi.com, the craziest folks in lighting. So you know how crazy they are? They have a new product they're calling their corn cob killer. Oh, so what this is is a <laughs> high-lumen LED filament lamp. And they say, Oof. yeah, it's real. 200 lumens per watt is what they're getting out of this. So wow. they have a, up to a 30-watt bulb, so that means 6,000 lumens. I did that math real quick, you see? 30 times 200. And it is the size of an HID lamp, so it'll fit. That's the other issue you always run into with corn cobs is the mm-hmm. size of them. This is designed to fit that size. It's a 4K, 5K, and they're going to have 22K for high-pressure sodium. So check out the corn cob killer. The corn cob killer. I love it. And, of course, go to tcpi.com. Longtime members of, Greg, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's right. We're lighting means business, folks. We're getting together. That's right. We're back. We're hitting it up with the Arclight Summit, September 13th. That's right. Come on down. Join us. Go to NAILD.org, baby. But right now, Steve, what's happening, brother? Well, 2022 is here. And, uh, you know, we, we've come through some pretty crazy times the last couple of years. And, um, you know, we're, we're focused. We're as focused as we've ever been on the business. We're really excited about what the possibilities are in lighting in spite of everything that you hear about all of the supply chain issues and everything else in the world, there's still uh, a tremendous amount of demand out there. And I think, uh, you know, my gut says we're on the verge of a renaissance in lighting. I think it's, mm. uh, it's only going to con- continue to grow and expand. I love that. We're going to, we're going to dive into questions regarding that. Um, but <clears throat> I did something today, Mike, that I don't think I've ever done in the 300 some shows that we've had. I had to go back and listen to our first episode with Steve. It was episode hey. 129. <laughs> we recorded it pre-COVID. We released it post-COVID. And <laughs> it's still as relevant today as it ever as ever. So I highly encourage you, you're going to listen to this one, but also go back to episode 129 and check that out because there's a lot more questions and specific FSG related that we get into on that. So that was a good time. I just thought that was interesting to actually go back and do that and some of the things and that's what i want to talk to you steve is kind of an update so people that listen to that or had listened to that i want to ask you some things still to see what's changed sure. maybe in the last couple of years so okay. and you guys might not remember what your answers were but i'm going to i'm going to tell you what they were <laughs> okay <laughs> so at the time uh you had your business was about 30 percent lighting and the rest was electrical that was two years yeah. ago how's yeah, it looking now uh, construction has actually grown faster than uh, lighting, so it's about 2080 right now because uh, a lot uh-huh. of big construction projects have uh, taken over. So uh, our, our top line growth, you know, 2020 was quite a contraction, 
in a lot of places because of the whole pandemic shutting things down. So we had large scale customers that just didn't even have facilities open. So that was a dent there. But construction projects that were going continued. And uh, so that was sort of the saving grace. And then backlogs came back out. So that was kind of what we saw in 2021. And now, you know, 2022, what, what I've learned through it all is, is forecasting still remains a dark art. So. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> another, yeah, there's another one you had here. How, how about the number of branches back then? Two years ago, you had 30. You think, I think you rough rounded yeah, up or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And we're still at 30. So we've not really expanded. We didn't, we didn't acquire anybody or we didn't open any additional branches. And I think, you know, in today's view is, is we're taking a, a lot more focused effort on maybe particular verticals and trying to grow in those areas and utilizing the, the resources that we have on the ground. So uh, no branch expansion. And we've, we, we kind of stretch from, from, you know, San Diego to New York City. So we, we touch a lot of places. But I think the bigger part of that is you didn't close any down i guess that's where i was wondering about more and you you went right to the expansion mode you're saying we didn't grow but we didn't we didn't close any so that's a big part of it right yeah yeah it was you know the one the one thing we did face when you know you remember it was what, two weeks to flatten the curve and we thought okay it's going to be a two-week thing and then two weeks turned into two years and we'd never faced at least in our lighting business that uh that we had to furlough people or we had to, you know, reduce force because the, the workload just dropped. And, and we were of a size that we didn't qualify for PPP and we didn't qualify for any of the large scale stuff. So, you know, our, our defense mechanism was right sizing the business as much as possible. And in my, I'd never faced that in 38 years in the lighting business and never had to furlough anyone or, or lay anyone off. And that was a sort of an unpleasant part of, you know, mm. what came out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So going back to the new construction that you mentioned that that's where a lot of growth has been. Is it been a certain industry? I mean, I can tell in my area what it is, but I'm curious nationwide what you're seeing the most growth. In. The financial sector continues to grow. You know, they're, they're still building financial institutions out there. I think uh, education is, is going to be solid. Uh, you know, the, the, the big, part that is probably had the hiccup is is uh finish out in uh existing commercial space that kind of thing because when people stop going into offices they stop doing things to them so uh i believe that's going to rebound now though because there is a awful lot of buzz about it's it's time for people to get back into the office and get back mm -hmm. to work so it's true there is a lot of that out there and of those new construction projects, this is maybe an impossible number to come up with, but what do you think, what would you estimate the percentage of uh, those projects had controls involved, LED, like advanced, well, let's just say controls. Yeah, controls. I, I think, you know, <laughs> controls are still one of those things that's talked about on every single It's project. another dark art, brother. <laughs> it, 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 it's a it's a really dark art. Nobody's it's the technology is is out in front of our ability to understand it. I think so. I don't think um, that's I don't but, think that's the right exact way I would put it. I would say the technology is <laughs> out in front of the value proposition. 
That's yeah, what I would yeah, say. Yeah. It's a better way yes. to kind of consolidate it. You know, I mean, yeah. when I look at when I look at controls, the most obvious application I see is with the dark sky guys. Like, why not mm -hmm. municipalities? Why not these people? Why don't they want to control their streetlights? Um, to yeah. me, and that's I, I never hear anyone talking about that in the lighting industry. And to me, it's the simplest, most obvious example of where you could tune, dim, brighten, cut off. And you could have pay someone to manage the system 24 hours a day. And I, I never hear, and I, I love the folks at PNNL that study this, and I love all the industry people that are in this talking about it. But, Steve, I never hear anyone saying to me what I think is the most obvious application for the deployment of this technology. Well, I, I, you're, you're not alone in that because I haven't heard that either. The, the, the nearest I've heard to that, we had an inquiry Oh, a few weeks back from um, one of our clients that was asking about if we had ever done colored street lightings in municipalities, the idea of turning on different colors. And uh, we, we searched far and wide and hadn't seen that. So uh, It's a vacuum, man. I'm telling is. you right now, <laughs> I'm not in that game. FSG is not in that game. We're just going to, we're downstream. And so yeah. we have no idea how to solve that problem for a client right now. And, you know, yeah. you just heard it from, you know, uh, Steve here. I, I talked about it a little bit on the Restoring Darkness podcast. The controls, guys, the, the business, the obvious business case to take all that technology you have and apply it right now is outdoor, not indoor, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. Very interesting. So, Steve, on, on that point, what do you think the percentage is? I don't know if you ever gave a number. I think you just said that maybe not <laughs> as many as you think. <laughs> oh, what projects have controls? Yeah, I can tell you we have some clients that every single facility they build has a control system on it uh, or a version of that. So I, I think they're probably specced or linked in, in almost all of them. Uh, okay. I, when, when you said percentage, my mind went to what percentage of the lighting packages is mm. related to controls. And that's, I think that's depending on how sophisticated they go somewhere between maybe five and, and 15 of what they do there. So, uh, and what I will say, we, we still have a, a, an awful lot of projects that they get uh, a control system put in and two months later you get a phone call and the, you know, the, the guy running the facility says, just, I just want to turn my lights off. Can you yeah. just help me out and turn yeah. them off? I was, I was going to so, ask that. I was going to ask if, if how much of the post in, uh, initial installation commissioning, how often do you have to go back and just give them a light switch? How often does that happen? They they ask pretty frequently about how to use it and implement it. And sometimes that's turnover. And, you know, when, when the building went up, there was somebody else running it and they had turnover and the new guy coming in needs to be brought up to speed on it. Uh, so I'd, I'd say that's a common one. And having a good controls partner, and uh, we've actually, we, we've now had to bring sort of controls expertise in-house with somebody that speaks that language and can do that. So it helps mm -hmm. them. It, it, it helps us navigate it for our clients when it comes up. That's exactly what I was going to ask is, is what do you have somebody that's dedicated only to that given your size? And it sounds like you do that just manages everything that comes up, any commissioning that might come up down the road too. Yeah. He, he's, he's sort of like an in-house subject matter expert with controls. There, there's a name strong. for him. He's a controls integrator. He's a controls <laughs> integrator. Go. That, no, I'm serious. Yeah. We we do a podcast with uh, that on, on our platform here with uh, with uh, Ron Kuzmar and Webb Marsh, and all they talk about is controls. And I listen to it 
for out of curiosity, you not know, as as a listener, I listen to it, and they call mm-hmm. it. They're calling that trade a, a controls integrator, someone that specializes yeah. in multi different types of controls packages, integrating them, managing them remotely, and things like that. So the 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 way the industry is going now is that you know an FSG will drill into your facility with an IP address. And just address those control issues from his office in, you know, Texas or wherever that fellow is in, in FSG. And he'll configure it there to avoid the trips out. It's, it's that advanced. They, they, they can do all yeah. that kind of stuff now. Yeah. And I, I think integrators, that, that's a really good word to say it. Because those are the people that can come in and tie all, all the pieces together and make it work for the end user. So our kind of, we, we do that in smart buildings where we're controlling other things beyond the lighting. So, you know, I think the HVAC industry, for example, is probably a lot more advanced in, you know, utilization of those controls. Mm. Now, how's the, um, you guys were big at one point into, maybe you still are, in UV lighting, like deploying, you had mm-hmm. different systems and setups. Are you still seeing a lot of demand for that? Well, you know, UV and UVC, that, that was the first sort of, wave of the pandemic as everybody said, oh, mm. what can we do to kill this? So there was a lot of initial demand, but I think that's really that that's tapered. Um, it, it's, you know, as we've learned to live with the thing, uh, there's, there's less of that out there in UV. It went from UV to kind of air purification, you know, ionization inside the atmosphere and kind of cleaning it that way. So we saw that kind of high interest everybody talked about it nonstop for probably three or four months there and then utilization occurred uh less of that today so i I think there's probably it it exists out there more people are aware of it but it doesn't have that you know sort of screaming to the front of the line effect that it had a year and a half ago you know the air purification piece is actually um you know, you have the you have the filtration guys in the in the space that mm-hmm. you know they want to use filters and this sort of thing, but filters won't capture a virus the size of COVID nineteen or you know, um, you know whatever these small aerosol airborne viruses. The lighting play is truly effective. It just never caught the imagination of the public, and 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 um, there was an opportunity there, and I felt it where it could have been. I offered it to multiple private schools. You know, this is, mm-hmm. they, but they went with surface disinfection for some reason with these push around carts. And I, yeah. I thought to myself, like, how, how did we mix this up so badly when, when the, when the air, you know, the um, passive and active air disinfection has been around for 40 years. They've been doing it in tuberculosis wards since the seventies. They know it works and you can conceal oh. it inside a, you know, a two by four trough or there's no chance of anybody being hurt by it or anything. But for some reason, the public was captivated by this surface disinfection play, which really is not, has yeah. nothing to do with killing COVID-19. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I don't know. I think one of the things we, we learned through all of that is, is we didn't know what we didn't know. Mm-hmm. And then what we thought we knew, we didn't know either. So we were, we were we were all on a level playing field about what we didn't know. So. Mm. I, I got to wonder too on some of those, and, and I sold some of the push around carts and things. Are people still using mm-hmm. them? That that bottom was that oh, just a fad that they question. they came in and did it, and now they are parked in a supply room somewhere. 
similar to control systems, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ah, jeez. That might be what the case is, but. Uh, what else are you are you guys seeing, Steve? In terms outside, of, I know you do a lot more than lighting, but where are you are you doing a lot with EV charging? Is that a big push for FSG? EV charging? Is yeah, very big right now. Uh, and and they're you know the the guys that are uh, providing EV charging equipment are they're, they're it, it feels a little bit like when LED first burst on, right? Everybody in the world was an LED guy and bringing mm. LED lamps to market. So there's an awful lot of people doing um, LED charging. I think there's a high demand for that as, as we push towards electric cars everywhere, that's not gonna go away. So kind of the install, getting it in place is one piece. And then it's the sort of aftermarket of that, of, of how do uh, commercial facilities create revenue off of that. So, mm, yeah. and again, that, that, that gets into, you know, hotels that have got EV stations that they're gonna let you charge your car overnight and add it to your bill, that kind of thing. So uh, I think that's gonna be uh, strong for a while. And then also anytime there's, you know, government funding behind it, and I think there's quite a bit been allocated for EV charging, it's gonna drive it. It's, it's like, you know, lighting, if, if I think back over the years of how much lighting upgrades and, and, you know, retrofits were driven by those programs that subsidized it, that that really moves the needle and gets stuff in place. So I think we're going to see that with EV charging as well. So you guys are in, you expand coast to coast. Are you seeing it heavy on the east and west and nothing in the middle or all over the place? I, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing it and in, in, it's talked about in almost all of our markets that, that we're in. And then, uh, you know, so in some of it, it might be because of our client base. So if we have, you know, national account clients that have facilities in those markets and they want EV charging in all their facilities that it's going to come up there. So um, and, and it will. I, I think that the demand will follow the incentive. So wherever the strongest incentives are is where you'll see the highest demand. One thing as I look at EV chargers for myself, I see that a lot of the uh, companies that make them are actually selling them. And a lot of times mm -hmm. we're quoting the install yes. side of it. Um, yeah. And, and that, that's where it gets hard to manage. And so I guess you're so, seeing the same thing, Steve. That's one. Yeah, it's, it's a blurring of the lines on, on you know, the, the channels to market are not as clear cut as they historically have been and mm. i think is is uh you know you've got manufacturers with product to move and they've got to get there so it's it's a speed to market issue and they're going to go with whoever gets them there the fastest and if that's themselves they're going to do that so i i think maybe you know a lot of those lines have maybe been permanently blurred in a lot of industries mm, that, I uh, agree. The, the, the internet's done that, right? It's made information and it's made transactions accessible to just about anybody. So people are gonna pick and choose their fastest path and where they get the most, I think, support for what it is they're trying to do. And you touched on it a little bit with the, how, how EV chargers work once they get it, they either paid for it or they're getting reoccurring revenue for it. And mm -hmm. are you guys in any agreements as the installers of a lot of these that you're actually getting uh, paid ongoing or reoccurring revenue from it. Yeah, there's so that almost again is similar to a controls play. It's it's okay. Who's going to monitor the information? What was the usage right. on it? And how much was there? So 
being able to, that's a data play who, who has the data and can make the data, you know, monetize the data for whether it's the facility. And, and if you're doing that for them, then there's a, a service there. So it could be, it, it can run the gamut. It can go, everything's on them and they figure that out themselves, you know, through metering and measurement, or you support them in that and you're gathering, collecting the data, reporting it. And, and you know, there's a fee for the, It's a service. So it's a, it's a, it's an after the sale, after the install service that people are looking at. You know, FSG, like in terms of size of company, it's in like a sweet mm-hmm. spot. So you, it's in a, in maybe a not sour spot too, when it came to some of the benefits <laughs> from COVID, but like you guys are at, you, you're nimble because you, you kind of have a solid management group that's been there for a long time. That's built the business. You guys are mostly still mm-hmm. there. I don't know how many people have changed, but obviously you've been there 38 years. And But you're big enough to really look at something like EV charging very strategically. Whereas the average lighting distributor, you know, to look at EV charging, try to deal with a Bosch, say, or a charge point. They're going to give you 10 points. So they're going to give you five points mm-hmm. on the sale of the thing. That's not how our businesses work, you know. Right. Um, and then the other side of it is that Actually implementing a fair amount of chargers is a major electrical renovation on a building. Like if you're in an existing mm-hmm. building and you want to put 40 chargers into that building, you got to change the switch gear or something. Like you got to bring another line in from the utility because these things use a lot of energy. And on their startups, yeah. and I know they're getting better with that kind of like shedding it and controlling it. And there's different types of things that you can do. To me, the average lighting distributor, you know, the one-off owner-operated, 15 people work there, whatever it is, that's a difficult um, uh, uh, thing to kind of take on board. You know what I'm saying? And are you guys in FSG even struggling with something like that? Well, I I think for – so if it was just the lighting side of the business and and all of the folks that are focused on lighting distribution trying to do that, it would be a, a really stretch. To, to try and reach it. That's where the other side of our business, which has the electrical expertise, you know, the technicians and all of the people that are familiar with how that goes in and that can do the things like you said, okay, it's it's more than just mounting three charging stations here. You got to say, what does that do to the switch gear back at the building and how do you do that? Uh, being able to access that expertise in-house with, <clears throat> you know, the folks that we have, I think is, is something that gives us sort of an added value for the user out there. They can talk the language better. So it, it's a much stronger play in that arena versus if it was a, a if, if I was just running the distribution business saying, okay, I'm ready to jump into EV charging. I, yeah. it, it's more, it's a lot more complex than, than, you know, converting. It's a, more a about electrical, no, lo, electrical building operational equipment knowledge, load, um, how big, you know, the, the, the cable coming in from the utility is. And it's not really a, a boat chargers. That's the last, that's the easiest part of it is, you know, drilling yeah. the charger into the concrete and wiring it up. That's nothing actually. Yeah. Following the code, making sure it's yeah. all sized right and all of that. So, yeah. and, and, and with that comes a tremendous amount of liability too. So, you know, yeah, you have to do that right. And most, you, you know, and, unless I, I'd say for lighting distributors, that's, that's an opportunity if that's something they want to go sell. And there's almost, if you're purely lighting focused and now you're going to go ask your guys, Hey, I want you to start pushing EV charging. You're taking them way out of their comfort zone 
of, of what they're used to. And, and you have to have a partner then at that point too, because the install, you, you're going to need some contractor friends to help you get that put in. Mm. I agree with that. I got so many notes here as I, you know, Greg took over the show there earlier. Um, <laughs> I was just <laughs> making notes here. And, you know, um, I want to talk to you though a little bit about this renaissance and the possibilities that you mentioned when we started off is a renaissance. So when, when people say a renaissance, what you're saying is a reigniting of the interest in higher ideas or bigger ideas, right? And, and that's, that's what a renaissance is. That's what, you know, Michelangelo, Leonardo. So when you're referencing a renaissance, we're actually raising the status of the industry's intellect to see something bigger. That's what I kind of think of when you said that. What do you what do you mean when you say there's so many possibilities in lighting and we're, we're going to experience a renaissance? What do, what do you mean by that? I think so on the, on the commercial side, it, as I think about and, and it's some of it's tied to control, some of it's tied to what light sources can do now. They're varying color temperature. They're varying lumen output. They're doing all of these things right at the fixture itself. The opportunities for shaping the way spaces look are almost endless now. And then the just the sheer ability of LED to scale downward to become smaller lumen packages. You mentioned uh, your your uh, discussion on the TCP corn cob killer, right? I mean, who would have thought exactly. a, a, a two hundred lumen per watt unit that looks like what people are used to seeing in an LED lamp was going to be available when LED came out? It's it's. You know, I reminded you all remember when CFLs first hit the market, right? There we go. CFLs are great, and and they were really ugly. I mean, they oh, we're not that old, Steve. Anything. We're not okay. that old. Ah, uh, we're, we're close. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that's that, that, that's my recollection of CFLs. They're really ugly. They don't fit right. But everybody was in a rush to put them in because they saved sure. energy. And then by the time CFLs reach saturation and we're on the way out because led was coming in they looked really good they looked like traditional light sources mm, led matched true, the same yeah. way. led came in and looked maybe a little funny at first you know they were bright they were glary they were kind of funny components stuck on them and now you look at you're talking about a corn cob killer that looks like an hid lamp delivering those kind of lumens that's that's pretty cool what's happening. And those are just the sources, right? Those are the sources we're used mm. to seeing in kind of traditional applications. I was just about Step to ask you that. I was just about to, I'm going to interrupt mm -hmm. here because I want to ask you about sustainability on that mm -hmm. note. We've seen a lot of fixtures deployed in the last 10 years that are not maintainable, repairable in any way, shape or form. You can't relamp them. Yeah. You can't change a driver. Um, yeah. How, you know, when you look at an FSG from your perspective, you know, obviously you're selling less and less legacy lamps, probably like, you know, whatever it's, yeah. it's in the single digits now in terms of your revenue. And, but you're looking at these fixtures we've been deploying. Do you ever step back and say, this is not actually good for the industry? The way we did the CFLs was better because we created base, integrated base GX23, and all lamps mm -hmm. had to be made to this size, this shape fit in that socket we had you know uh, we went from you know t12 to t8 to t5 but everyone could make that same lamp and it was replaceable and they could make the ballast and it was replaceable and so i think the way yeah. that the cfl revolution was handled was handled by lighting people who thought through all the way to the end the difference between that mm -hmm. and the led is it almost seems like everybody was swinging through the trees with a knife in their teeth trying to make anything <laughs> they could um yeah. 
And how do you think we are? Do we need to switch to a sustainable, repairable, maintainable model where we insist that manufacturers meet these form factors and meet these cross compatibility criteria and what have you? Or are we just going to keep it wild west? I think I, you know, I. It's a difficult question, but what comes to mind is that's part of the Renaissance opportunity. Form factors will change. You know, you, you, you can now light a room because you have an entire wall that can become a light source through OLED or something like that. Mm. So, you know, form factors are now open field for anybody mm. that can come up with one that's unique, new, and interesting. And I think that probably is going to triumph the ability to replace and maintain something that's going to look the same for 10 years. I think people are open to change a lot more now and, and they want to see these new things. And as people become more creative in, in how to apply these space, apply light in these spaces, the, the wild West is probably going to be there for a while. So, um, and, and I can tell you, I think I, I love, I, I grew up traditional lamps, Boy, bring them in the back of the warehouse and push them out the front, and you mm -hmm. could. It was fairly repetitive, and it was. Uh, I never realized how simple the business used to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thought it was hard at the time, right. but it used to be simple. More complex now, but selling fixtures is uh, a whole lot more fun, and 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 light fixtures into the market is a it's a it's a different animal uh, you know different path to market but it's a lot more fun the results are a lot um more kind of uh, i don't know stimulating when, when yeah. you see him so, i agree with you that, I, I think i think you're right i think you know i do a, another show called the sustainable light fixture show where there's a, there's people actually pushing for like a ANSI ANSI standard or a NEMA standard for led light sources I think that they're going to get railroaded. I, me included, the people pushing that. I think it's going to be very tough. But, you know, I think in the opposite direction, you need to see some standards come out for the controls, interoperability yeah. standards. I, I, do, I think we're going to continue to see the Wild West on the fixtures and on the light sources wall, like whole walls of light. And, you know, because they're talking about vertical light being so much more important than horizontal light. But we all knew that from the fluorescent, uh, the a metal halide to fluorescent boom when you put so much light on the walls of a factory they thought it was brighter even though <laughs> the, the, it was less light on the on the meter ver, uh, horizontally so we all knew that kind of by our guts that that's very important but i think we have to get these control manufacturers we find we have to find a way to herd these cats together and say look you guys get one or two protocols that's it you're done yeah. and they have to be interoperable and then somebody's got to be control of so uh, software updates one place that's in control of it because otherwise you're going to end up with a the balkanization of the of lighting controls industry yeah that's that and that's that's a tough one and, and i think it was the you know we probably can learn some lessons from the hvac people there too with they, they there was a lot of different i think controls platforms for those things and I know, and I, that's that's way outside of my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. But I know there's a lot of discussion about backnet compatible and, and the control system that could talk to you know all of them. So I think the world is still in search of that universal translator that brings everything together and speaks one language back out to everything else. Well, no, we have that 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 is, that that exists in the software world. That already XML, mm -hmm. JSON, all these different ways of integrating information they're purposely not doing it 
That's the problem. Like the people that are making the controls are making them not be compatible with one another on purpose because they want to be the Apple or the Google. Yeah, I think generally where there's some some source of confusion and something, the person that understands that confusion is who benefits from it. So, mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, there's probably some self-protection in that. You talked a little bit also about monetizing the data. And I thought that was such an interesting idea because I've often felt to myself that, you know, when you use Google, for example, you're not the customer, you're the product. When you yeah. use Facebook, you're not the customer, you're the product, right? So that, that whole software industry went through a transition where you bought a disk from Microsoft, you put it on the computer, you downloaded the software, and it was yours, and you were Microsoft's customer. That's completely mm-hmm. changed now. You're the product of these companies that they sell, okay? Yeah. And I thought to myself, the only way where you're going to see significant penetration into these buildings if the, is if the lighting system, which is the most pervasive and can be Li-Fi enabled and can two-way Li-Fi and Li-Fi can actually see moving objects. It's starting to be able to identify things, right? If we were able to, and as dark and as conspiratorial as that sounds, if you were able to turn these things into information that was actually valuable, people would give away mm-hmm. the light fixtures for free. And, yes. and I, I think that's... Go ahead. Subscription service. You have the subscription service then. You know, they're subscribing to the information that you're pumping back to them. So, yes. And it's like you're almost like the gear you give away. You give them the free phone. So they sign up for the ATT wireless subscription a month, right? Um, Can we go there? You start oh, giving them maps, right? You start yeah. giving them maps and say, oh, you, you want to you monitor room occupancy? That's this app. Oh, mm-hmm. you want to monitor cloud coverage on these days and dim the lights this much? That's this app. So I, I don't know, but, but uh, that's what sort of comes to mind is, you know, we live in an app world that, mm-hmm. that, that that's, that's on your phone. And, uh, you know, maybe lighting systems are going to go that same direction. So. Yeah, beyond illumination. So there's something there. Um, and so my final note here that I was making while we were, actually there's a couple other ones, but um, kind of answered. You were talking about the supply chain issues. And, mm-hmm. you know, so here at Atlas, you know, um, we, you know, have a warehouse. We got an order desk. We have projects, you know, whatever. We're doing what we do. Similar to you guys, but on a, you know, a smaller scale. And so the supply chain issues are usually solved by, hey, Mike, you're out of this. Do you know where we can get this? And I'm like, you know what? Get, get Jared from TCP on the line. Get this guy on the line. Call up this guy over here, you know, and, and this sort of thing. And that's how we solve the supply chain issues at Atlas. Ask Michael. That's the strategy. Because um, I, I know so many people. But a business like yours, you, you got multiple branches. You got lots of different things going on. Um, how do you guys look at a supply chain issue when you have projects booked and you're not sure if there's going to be tubes available or fixtures or backward? How do you look at it sort of above the fray? Like I'm in the business. I'm not working on the business. I'm working in my business. You guys have the opportunity to kind of look at trends and strategies. How did you guys handle the supply chain situation? The, well, it, it's, it's real and it's out there, but the, thing, the, the best we could do is, is mitigate you know, bad outcomes. And that was entirely contingent upon really open communication throughout the supply chain. So from the user that can give you some kind of, you know, picture 
of demand and what they're going to do and what their expectations are and taking that and communicating that all the way back to the manufacturers that you're going to put in place because at the manufacturing level, they're all about, okay, we can put in orders for components. We're going to have drivers and ships and that kind of thing, but we got to kind of have some demand. They don't build anything until they have POs now, but if you can communicate that activity that's coming and then you have some kind of a track record of reliability on that and you take some risks too right and we've had to do that we've, we've had to take some risks in those areas and say you know what we're going to hedge a little bit on this forecast and we're going to put this sort of inventory at, at risk and put it in play to support these schedules because we've seen this track record of that they their schedule hits 95% of the time and you can go that way. So that that communication is paramount uh knowing early and often about changes within that and and that's that's the only only way we've found to keep some sanity and and yet we had to you can't just hold that in as a distributor and do that. You've got to link back to your manufacturing partners and say this is the situation and I got to know how you can help with that. And there's varying degrees of help that they'll that they'll bring to that situation. Some of them will say, "Okay, you've told me this. I'm going to double my components for drivers on my next go round and do that." And and then that helps that when the demand hits, they at least can put the components together and build it and get it out. And then then you have a hope of keeping your client on his schedule because that in in the new build world where they're rolling out multiple sites and trying to build things the more you cannot be the guy that's that made the schedule go awry or, or cause the delays the the more likely you are to get that next order from them and and, and yeah. so that that's been an important piece in supply chain and i don't i don't know if it's true i've thought about this a lot because I, I i keep hearing these sort of stories uh in talking to to people that you know when when the first noise about supply chain disruptions was happening and at first it was okay covid's here and the world shut down people aren't working and then it was ships getting stuck in the canals and things being bottled up at ports and then who knows what else is causing all this stuff to be stacked up where it is now a lot of people double and triple ordered demand that they thought they had and i and i, and I think there's I don't know. There's a part of me and you can say this is the black helicopters flying around my head here that there's been this demand that's overstated, that's piled up out on containers and barges and mm. inside of factory components. And at some point mm. when that shakes loose, maybe that's going to be maybe that's not a renaissance. It's the opposite of whatever a renaissance is. It's going to be a it's going to be a glut of material that people are looking to to get rid of and 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 dump. So uh, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. That's that's my old brain speculating. Sure. So. That's yeah. No, that's a lizard brain coming through and saying your gut <laughs> telling you what's going to happen. But you know, it's interesting, guy. I could go so many different directions. But I'm just going to say this: it's so much different when you get to a certain size of business. You know, when he, what he's talking about their trends. You have multi, your regionality. You can see things. That you have a, a like a, almost like a greater visibility. That's super interesting. And what you talked about about how the distributor is um, through trusted partnerships is providing his manufacturer partners with you know 
for like a sense of forecasting like or something there's demand coming you know and yeah. and, and you can rely on us to buy from you because we were trusted partners and not everything's about price with us it's also about like what you talked about delivering on time and these other things that's what the ev charger guys need to hear that you know, the, the go direct model is there's a reason why there's lighting distributors in 2022 and why they're all, you know, yeah. in fact, they're, they're doing well. Um, mm -hmm. And there's dealerships, there's still car dealerships out there. There's a reason why this exists. And, you know, they, you know, whether you like the dealership model or you like a distribution model where a distributor, the difference between dealership and distributor, meaning multiple brands, one single brand for a certain product, right? That would be the difference. Mm -hmm. um, but these models are effective. And they work and there's reasons why they work and they work a little different now, but generally the principles are there. Um, yeah. Greg, did you have any final questions for Steve? I do. Yeah. And it relates really well to this topic. And, and I think you've kind of implied your answer there, but I'm going to ask it. So two years ago, again, I go back to that. You said uh, you feel the end users are going to put partnerships ahead of brand recognition, or you said that word. And to me, that means mm -hmm. it, what's happening in the market. And I'm seeing it is, the people we're selling to don't know what they're buying. They don't usually know the brand. I mean, that's my instance. I think it's Mike's. Mm -hmm. I think it sounds like maybe yours, Steve. Uh, not all the time, but more often than not, it's, you know what you're doing. Get me the right stuff. Are you as FSG or your company, are you guys partnering closer with manufacturers now than you were before? Or are you working with more manufacturers? We We work with a lot, but we really value a handful that we work closely with. You know, I, I don't, maybe the 80-20 rule really is a, a, a rule of life that, mm. that is out there because you, uh, you, you can only have so much complexity in how you execute. And, and it, every manufacturer you work with is, adds a, a different level of complexity of how you work with them. And then if you want to deliver consistency, you want to deliver reliability, you want to have that good communication link. I can I can do that 15 times, right? I can't do it 1,500 times effectively. At least I haven't figured that out yet. So uh, that, 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 that does apply. So I, I think, you know, the, the ones that you work closely with, you, you hold really close and you work really close with them. And, it, and I, I would say business is just a whole lot more fun and a lot more, um, a lot less stressful when you're working that way than if every single kind of situation is a jump ball and, and you're in there fighting for it, you know. So uh, that's, but that that that's sort of how I'm wired. I, I, w I would choose stability, reliability, and consistency over sort of the the, the sheer volatility of, you know holy crap, I can really blow this thing up if I make the wrong decision here. So. I just looked at the clock, you know, we spoke for 42 minutes here. Holy mackerel, <laughs> I can't believe that. That just went by like that. Um, but you know what You know what I was thinking of when you said that? It's kind of like the old adage, don't put all your eggs in one basket, but I'm going to add something to that. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, but don't put every egg in one basket either. You know, not yeah. a basket for every egg. Like, you know, you want to you yeah. be able to, like – you want to be able to reward a good supplier. You want to give them regular business so that they, you know, you become a preferred client, you have a relationship with them, you know? And yeah. so, yeah, I totally agree. Steve, do you have any final thoughts for the, the nailed and get a grip on lighting listeners out there? I, you know, I think that group is uh, be, because of their love for lighting 
in the place that they fit into it. They are this conduit of everything that's happening in all these local markets all across the country. And they see it there first. They're going to see and understand what clients are talking about and what they're wanting. So they're going to be, they're going to continue to be a vital part of how lighting gets to market out there. I think as they stretch their capabilities, uh, you know, they, they, they can serve more. I got to spend some time with Greg and, and, and getting to know him a little bit better. And I, and I'm just, I'm, I'm in awe of the guys like him that in their market can command the value, deliver the value and actually run a really good business in doing that. So, uh, lighting distribution, I'm biased. I mean, it's, it's all I've done for 40 years. I, I, I love it. I don't think lighting distribution is going away. Like, you know, the, the Amazons of the world or whatever are going to do their thing, but there's still <clears throat> genuine value to be had in local market, local market knowledge, local market relationships, and then communicating how to best effectively serve those customers out there. So there's art and science in lighting that keeps it exciting, fun, and fresh all of the time. And then there's also the distribution pieces. I call it the dirty knuckle work somebody's got to get that product to the site. So uh, NAILD is in a good position. So. Well, we're glad to have FSG as a member, Greg. And you, you know what else? We've got to talk about another longtime vendor member of, of Nailed, and that's the crazy people, man. The craziest folks in lighting, <laughs> tcpi.com, Greg, Eric, let it rip. Well, I think Scott's <laughs> going to put it up on screen, but the corn cob killer. Yeah, it's real, man. 200 lumens per watt. We talked about it before the show, during the show, and now after. You better check that thing out because it is unique and it fits that HID size that you're used to. So no messing around with pulling out reflectors, removing lenses, none of that fits. I can't wait to get my hands on one of those, brother. I'm, I'm not kidding you. Like Sometimes a product comes across <laughs> and you're like, you know what? If it burns out, I can give them another one? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> can just change it out? Yeah, that, that sounds like really cool, actually. So go to tcpi.com. We love Ellis and all the folks down there. You guys are great. And, of course, if you folks are coming to the convention, why not? Arclight Summit and Nailed, kicking it hot together in September. That's right. Nailed of eight. What, what, what is it? What do we, what, we don't even have a name for our convention yet. We, Greg, we don't even have a theme. we got to get working on this thing. Who but needs a name? Down. You know it needs a good. name. It, need a, it needs a. It needs a name. It needs a name. But it's going to be in Dallas, Texas. That's right. At the uh, what do they call that place where the ArcLight thing is called again? The Dallas Market Center. Market Center. Market Center. Yeah. 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 So it's going to be awesome for the vendors, and there's going to be lots of great other content from ArcLight. So it's going to be super fun. So check it out, guys. Uh, go to NAILD dot and gals. Check it out, gals too. NAILD dot org. And of course, we thank. Steve Byrne, Executive Vice President of FSG. What a pleasure it was to have him on the show. I mean, I loved the last one, and even Greg's review of it. I'm going to go back and listen to it, too. 129, Greg? You got it. Episode 129, and of course this one. And if you made it to all the way to the end, like so many of you guys and gals do out there, hey, we love you guys. Bye for now.